This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Palgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Streaming's influence on GMing. A poisonous portrait book. Early 80s SF films. And The Devil's Architect. What comes between Once Upon a Time and Happily Ever After? Every dramatic, heartbreaking, and amazing twist and turn of every fairy tale ever told, that's what. Exactly! That's why our friends over at Atlas Games made the storytelling card game Once Upon a Time. Players create an exciting story together using the card elements from fairy tales. It encourages creativity, decision-making, and cooperation. This classic design by James Wallace and Andrew Rilston has been called one of the top storytelling games of all time. Some might even say the greatest storytelling game of all time. Once Upon a Time is about princesses overcoming danger, foxes dueling pirates, kings searching for lost crowns, and every other fairy tale plot players can imagine. Players tell their own fairy tale using elements on the cards and try to steer the conclusion toward their secret ending. Themes can be all-ages friendly or more mature, depending on the players at the table. Go over to atlas-games.com by May 31st and use coupon code ONCE2023 to get a free expansion when you purchase any three Once Upon a Time titles. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures... The crunch of Doritos and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut, except that everyone's on the same side of the table. Doritos hasn't paid a promotional fee, so we can't do it. Also, the crunch is bad for the mic. We can't thump the miniatures. That's also bad for the mic. And we can't clear the Peter Frampton rights. So it's something we found on freemusic.org. Right, but we're all very well lit. But we are mostly very well lit. One of us is not, but, you know, we're not going to mention that because they're playing an elf or something. Anyways, all of these changes were necessary, we think, for a streaming version of the Gaming Hut because we're responding to, I think, a susurrus of questions and chin scratchers as not just us, but others have begun to ponder how... Is running a game for a streaming audience different from one's default GM practice? And I will start this by saying I don't believe that, well, I know I haven't run a game for a streaming audience. Robin, have you run a game for a streaming audience? Yes. Or I, I think one was streamed later, but the yeah. whole point was this was for an audience. So I, right. I have done this. And so the, the impetus for this question is a few weeks back, I was at an actual panel at an actual convention, and it was, of course... The GM troubleshooting panel that all other panels turn into uh-huh. uh, halfway through. And for the first time, some of my fellow panelists were, you know, asked the usual questions about GMing and their answers reflected the fact that they run not just for their own groups, but they run streaming games for the entertainment of others. And their tips took that into account. And so a thing I always say is that a former thing I always say was ruined by streaming. I used to say that role-playing was an art form where the audience and the creators are the same. But now, of course, we've made role-playing much bigger by making it something you can passively consume. But the idea that you're doing it for the passive consumption of others, 
I think clearly changes what it is that you're doing. And I think will also feed into what other people do at their own tables when they're not streaming. First of all, because if you do stream, you're going to pick up those habits and the ones that work, you're going to put them at your home table even when the camera isn't on. And people who, as is increasing the case, learn how to role play and about role playing by watching streaming are going to perhaps not even consciously take in those techniques and use them and perhaps not do some things that used to be staples at the gaming table, but now are probably off the boards because they would be too boring or perhaps even can aggravating to watch. Well, I mean, I am of the of the school that thinks that all role-playing games are too boring and aggravating to watch. I I literally noped out during Jenny Nicholson playing a tabletop role-playing game, and if that can't keep me interested, I'm afraid no number of Joe Manganiello's and Rockstar RPGers is going to do it for me. So my apologies in advance to Deborah Ann Wool, but I feel like it's just not a hobby for me. So I guess your your thoughts then will be entirely speculative. <laughs> yeah, I mean that they would have to be. Yes. I don't rule out ever doing it because that would not bore me. I would be just doing it, but just you know, for an audience in the same way that I'm not bored with chatting with you, Robin, even though we're doing it now for an audience and it's somewhat different from our normal chats. But as a consumer of this art form, I'm I'm not one. I prefer the participatory versions of, of both sides. So let's start then thinking about what sorts of things will and won't go into a game that is uh, streamed and how that will wind up at people's tabletops. And I think essentially the things that are less interesting to watch, but might be perfectly interesting to players to do together are going to start getting filtered out and to hark back to a other recent segment of Blue Booked. Mm -hmm. So, for example, you're not going to see a lot of equipment buying, you know, that I'm sure there is a podcast where there's like a whole episode just to people, you know, buying their D&D equipment, because after all, there's an entire genre of YouTube videos about people eating noodles. So <laughs> I imagine there is some audience for that. But I think in general, people are going to start unconsciously judging the question is, are people engaged? Will I think start to become, would someone watching this be engaged? And so I think that gives you as the GM sort of an excuse to move away from the table certain things that violently interest one or two participants and bore the others, including, of course, yourself. And so I think there are certain things that you're going to develop techniques to pull things out of the past that you otherwise would tolerate at the old-timey pre-streaming gaming table. I mean, that's, I think, sort of the, the zeroth rule is that everything you do for a streaming game is thought of, as you say, for an audience that you're talking about audience engagement. So my previous theory, and maybe it's true, is that you could tape a regular old role-playing game and you could cut out all the boring bits, like in soccer when they do match of the day, and they cut a interminable soccer game down to half an hour, and suddenly it's somewhat exciting. And I feel like you could do that with a standard, even, you know, regular old session, you know, with an editor judiciously chopping stuff out, you could create a, uh, a strong, maybe not strong, but certainly a not uninteresting narrative. But the people who are doing the streaming, by and large, don't use editors. They're trying to do it all in the moment. So that internal editor is always thinking, is this engaging? Is this moving story forward? And I feel like 
some people are falling back on other kinds of performance, like, you know, we're doing a bit, like a stand-up bit or a routine between our two characters, and everyone enjoys that because they enjoy those two player actors, and they enjoy those two characters, and they like their bit, but something that maybe you might not do every night at a game session, you're going to wind up doing in streaming where the dwarf and the elf have to get into a hilarious bit because that's what the audience is here to expect, right? In the same way that you tune into a serialized television show. And if, you know, Timothy Oliphant isn't shooting gun thugs, you feel cheated. You you would feel the same way if the dwarf and the elf don't get into their bit, right? Right. So I guess what you're positing there is that uh, players will start to develop things that they find entertaining and they will do that at their regular tables as well as on uh, streaming. Well, one thing I think you will see GMs tolerate less once they get started thinking, would my viewers want to see this, is actual conflict between players that I think more in the before times, uh, partly because of the personality profiles involved, that there was a much higher tolerance for long periods of rules argument <laughs> and for tactical disagreement over what to do next. And I think you're going to start to see GMs do what I've started doing more in my later GMing anyway, is in guiding people to very quickly resolve that stuff. Because particularly on streaming, if there's actual true disagreement and not just, you know, people going over their various choices, that's going to drive people away hard. And so mm -hmm. I think, and that may well keep people in gaming groups longer as if GMs become not more aggressive, but more proactive about quickly mediating disputes and keeping everybody friendly and possibly even weeding out the people who are, are there for conflict. And that goes not just for, you know, genuine disagreement in which people have an emotional stake, but also people who like to argue rules. I think rules lawyering is going to start getting cut out. There's a longstanding technique to deal with that, which is I'm going to listen to you each for two minutes, decide, and then at the end of the session, we can go off and, you know, argue for a permanent ruling on this rule. And I think you're going to see techniques like that used a lot more by uh, GMs because they are, you know, getting accustomed to thinking of keeping it moving and keeping it interesting for viewers on streaming. I feel like some degree of rules lawyering is more common when everyone involved is new to the hobby than it is as you, you know, get older and internalize the fact that nothing that happened at the table is actually, you know, making you, the player, lose hit points. I, I would like to believe that, but yes. I've, I've seen contrary evidence. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I'm not saying there's no contrary evidence. I'm saying that the, the statistical preponderance of rules lawyering has dropped as the median age of my players has increased. So maybe it's just uh, that I've been proactively uh, inserting that streaming discipline to begin with. Right. I, fe I feel like you're also going to maybe start... And, and some of these things are, are things that I think, you know, like moving the rules lawyering to after the session and maybe even moving the shopping to before the session. These are things that I think will generally improve play. And I would argue that playing to a, a dramatic moment, whether it's a big fight or a big personal showdown, something like that. Uh, people are going to internalize that sort of, I don't want to say TV rhythm, but that TV rhythm of we've only got three hours, something needs to happen in these three hours. And so the sort of, you know, lazy hangout D&D of just poking the walls and every now and again you kill a carrion crawler and boop ba doop ba doo which might have been great, you know, in a high school Saturday afternoon 
is, you know, you're, you're, you're burning daylight. You, you, there's only so many, no one would watch even Deborah Ann Wall do that, much less, you know, regular people. So I feel like the desire to front, you know, sort of front and center drama is going to be, you know, the, the streaming environment will dr- demand that. And then I, I feel like that generally good habit will maybe start drifting into play. And I don't see a problem. Do you see something where a streaming habit is going to be either orthogonal or act- outright damaging to default table culture, Robin? I don't think damaging per se, but you're going to see different. Some oxes are going to be gored, right? Because mm-hmm. if you really like a tactical play, the hobby is already moving toward more emotional storytelling. And the player who wants to make sure that everything is perfectly pre-planned so that nothing bad actually happens when the characters do the thing, I think it's going to suffer another setback. Mm-hmm. Because a perfect tactical success where nothing at all goes wrong is deadly for streaming, <laughs> right? Because yeah. when streaming becomes storytelling, the GM is going to introduce more obstacles and you know negative story beats because, of course, there aren't any movies where someone plans a heist and it goes off perfectly well and then they go hang out on a beach together that's not how it works so that's your desire i think you're going to find that shunted off to the side another thing that i think you're going to see that is overall positive but will frustrate uh, a few people is that streamers increasingly especially in a, a fighty systems especially in f20 will start to edit the fights near the end. Not everybody uses 13th Age and its escalation diet, which prevents fights from running out of steam and getting boring in the back half. And some GMs will just go, okay, well, let's skip ahead to the final round and literally edit the fight in mid-go so that the streaming audience doesn't fall asleep. And I think the majority of people at any table are going to go, yeah, let's skip the bit where we just, you know, tediously mop up these last, you know, few centipede men. But I think, again, you're going to have some people think, well, that's against the whole contract of this game. Why are we, why don't we just use all of our cool abilities and spells and stuff in the very first round? It's like, yes, why don't you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel like that is, that's something that is going to get up the nose of a lot of table contracts and not everyone who wants to play a tactical fight is going to gravitate to the virtual tabletops where that sort of play is, is fed in other ways. And I can assume that as the sort of, you know, in the, in the same way you watch video game playthroughs, I'm sure there are already people watching D and D playthroughs of a virtual tabletop and the, and the battle that happened. And I feel like that will only get bigger as virtual tabletops get better, but it is going to bifurcate the perceived hobby in the same way that no one really considers a first person shooter, the same thing as a, you know, as a story game. And those, those two axes are going to draw each other apart in streaming. And I wonder if that's going to draw each other apart when you go to the bulletin board and you're going to see, um, you know, Dungeons and Dragons fights welcome versus Dungeons and Dragons edit practice or something. And it's going to start bifurcating the hobby at the, at the jump, right? Another thing that is already happening that streaming, I think, is going to emphasize. And I think in a lot of ways, streaming was enabled by some of these developments and now is reinforcing them, is the thumb being put on the scale of narrative so that only satisfying things happen. Mm. And most particularly, no stupid, meaningless deaths. Because it is already the case that a long-running character dying 
is possibly more annoying to the GM than it is to <laughs> that person's player because the player may be going, well, I've been playing this character for a while, but what about my winged ninja I wanted to play? Or winged as they're called. Yeah. But if an audience is deeply involved in the life of this particular character over episode to episode to episode. It's one thing if everything leads up to a climactic battle on the side of the mountain as the uh, uh, wings of apocalypse flap in the air and they realize their full iconic identity by taking a sword and then, you know, collapsing with a dramatic monologue. But just, you know, dying because a mimic rips your leg off and nobody has any healing spells. I think you're going to see even more fudging to make sure that that doesn't happen. And and part of that, I think, is that uh, you're going to see a move toward no bread and butter boring encounters, right? Wandering monsters, I think, are going to go out the window because they're not only create the chance of, you know, an annoying, pointless death, but also they are in and of themselves sort of narratively inert. They don't follow a, a through line. So I think you're going to see a move toward, you know, every scene has to count. And uh, the idea that you're moving through a simulation and just poking the world is, I think, if, as you've already kind of suggested, going to become an older form of, of role-playing. Or a purely table form of role-playing. I mean, role-playing itself split into a million different sub-streams back before we had streaming to do it, and they all still survive. You could probably, you know, go on the internet right now and find people who are playing the Morrow Project, God forbid. Right, sure, but, but in, in general, yeah. you know, in, in, in the broader spectrum of things, you're going to see a movement away toward that, because once you've gotten used to either as a player in a streaming game or the watcher of a streaming game of nothing pointless ever happens, you're going to internalize that. And if the GM wants to just, you know, throw a bunch of skeletons at you and then you fight them and then that's it, you're going to ask yourself, well, why did we spend that 90 minutes? Right. And so I guess that is sort of the, the Uber answer to everything is I think people will start evaluating why are we spending time on this in a way that perhaps role players of your, particularly in the pre-streaming era didn't necessarily. Well, I, I guess the sort of, you know, summa of all this is that the demands of streaming are going to be ever more opposed to the demands of 12 and 13 year olds playing D and D for the first time, because literally everything we just said that's going away is virtually the entire point of playing D and D for the first time. So we'll, we'll see who wins, right? Right. Because if your first experience of D and D is not, grinding through a random dungeon, but watching somebody's super cool dungeon with superstar players, you might indeed expect a very different first session and play quite differently. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, the thing that you're doing as a 12 year old, when you watch something amazingly cool, I think you're internalizing it differently as a passive consumer than as a participant audience. And I remember, you know, watching star Wars made no difference to the coherence of running around in the backyard, hitting each other with sticks. So I feel like at some level, you know, adolescence is going to adolescent. And frankly, I kind of hope so, because it would be a shame for that ridiculous, often pointless, often meandering energy to go away and once more be drowned out in the sort of everything has to fit a narrative. Everything has to fit an audience. Everything has to, you know, please other people mush that the entire rest of their lives is going to be spent in. Well, you were trying to sum up, and then I said another thing, and it got you into a whole other theme. So let's get out of this hut before we got our legs ripped off by a mimic or a big new topic. 
The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders, but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe 1-to-1 system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need to run a one-player, one-GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. That can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press web store. Or drive through RPG. It smells like a bookstore. It's almost quiet like a library. It is a structure in which we find many books. It is, in fact, the book hut. And this time around, we're going to have to undergo some safety procedures before uh, entering the book hut because a beloved Patreon backer, Dan Noland, points us to an article by Jackie Palumbo of CNN who tells us about William Bash's poisonous portrait album. This is a book as a collection of his work, I think for his own personal use, a 19th century silhouette portraitist, and it's deadly poisonous. <laughs> so Ken, why don't you tell us a bit about William Bash? William Bash immigrates to America in 1793. He was born in 1771. And at some point he began, it looks like, as a, a printer or running a bookstore, but he soon developed the technology to Take People's Silhouettes, which was all the rage back in Europe in uh, the late 1700s and early 1800s, because a silhouette is relatively easy to produce and a common person could afford it. And so it's uh, you don't have to sit for a long old time like you do for a portrait. And it could be sort of produced for the masses for, and for the lower middle classes. And it's machine guided, which is something I didn't know. And in this case, it is machine guided. It's not just a guy drawing on the wall as you sit there. It is a physiognotrace machine, which William Batch patented in 1803 and then set off on an itinerant career of silhouette making four profiles for 25 cents. You can get the likeness shaded in for 50 cents, or you could get a colored painted miniature for $2, which I assume is basically the same techniques that the caricaturist at the, you know, state fair does for you. But he, he offered, you know, a full on little painted miniature, but those don't survive. The only thing that survive are the silhouettes. And the physiognotrace machine, according to what we know, doesn't involve touching anyone's face, which was probably cool because no one likes their face touched. In the South, you could get shot for touching people's faces. Right. And so. uh, normally, face touching is not part of portraiture anyway. Yeah, well, it's certainly not uh, what you want in a right. silhouette setting. I guess there must be a version where you lean against the wall and they, they trace you. And they draw around it. I don't right. know. But in this, but this case, isn't that. he's figured out what it is. We don't know exactly what it was because all the patent files burned down in 1836. But he made a success of it, certainly. He would trace the shadow onto light-colored paper. The paper would be folded in quarters. When he cut it out, he would then paste the, you know, the white outlines onto black mat, and that's how people would get their basic silhouette. And then he would keep the heads that he cut out, one of them, and paste them into his little 
album and color it in with, I think, either lamp black or bone ink. The studies did not narrow it down too terribly much because, as you alluded, while they were trying to figure out what the ink was, they discovered arsenic everywhere and had to stop touching the nice album. When you see it on the Smithsonian webpage, they say sitters include George and Martha Washington and Thomas Jefferson. And you say, and who else? And they say, no one you've ever heard of. <laughs> right, because he was just going around doing this for regular people for right, yeah. money. So now the, the Smithsonian project, on one hand, is about providing non-poisonous facsimiles of this book to people. So you can either go uh, onto a website uh, that there'll be a link to and in the uh, CNN article, or you can just Google it, uh, William Bash. Or we can uh, link it to the show notes. Yeah. We have Uh, that There are no show notes, Ken. (laughs) I I keep stressing this point. There are no (laughs) show notes. But you can look at it in a lovely animation where you can flip the pages, or you can get an EPUB version of it and download that. But what they're trying to do is get people who are researching their own ancestry to try and connect up the names, which are neatly written at first and then increasingly wayward as he gets older and his uh, handwriting deteriorates and figure out, you know, which blacksmiths and dressmakers and uh, farmers these silhouettes depict. So that's part of a big new thing that people who are involved in genealogy and, and whose ancestors would have lived in the areas that Bash visited, you can, you know, do some research and figure out maybe you're Great, 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 greats are uh, in little black and white pictures in this book. And this album is probably only the first of his albums. It begins with his Virginia, which is where he began his itinerant silhouetting. The first 75 are Virginians, including George and Martha Washington. George Washington, of course, dies in 1799. So either he took an earlier silhouette of George Washington while he was practicing with his physiognotrace or... When he went to do the silhouette of Martha, he noticed the life mask of George Washington on the wall and said, can I make a silhouette of of the president? And Martha Washington, apparently having, you know, paid her quarter anyway, she says, sure, why not? And he goes ahead and makes a silhouette of the life mask of Washington. But then there's 672 in New Orleans, which was sort of his next stop because it had just been annexed by the United States. And he thought, what a great market to go. Lots of rich traders. I'll, I'll bop down there. And then people in New Orleans loved it so much, and many of them traded with Cuba, and they said, you know who has a lot of money and nothing on their walls? Everyone in Cuba. So he hies himself off to Havana and spends almost two years off and on in Havana, taking seemingly hundreds, if not thousands, of silhouettes. And in fact, a Havana newspaper later in 1806 says, why does everyone have a million silhouettes in a tacky little zinc frame on their wall now? It's because of that American bash who came through with his dumb silhouette machine. What a jerk. But <laughs> apparently charitable of him. he was beloved in Cuba. The 1060 that are unnumbered and unnamed. It's not even that his writing gets bad. He just got, you know, too busy to keep track of people with a lot of, to him, no doubt, indistinguishable names in the back of his book. And we don't know if of those 1,060, how many are Cuban and how many are from the East Coast when he came back and he went up through like Providence and Boston and Salem and all the other places that he went after he uh, came back from Cuba, because he did eventually go back to Philadelphia and then up a tour through the Northeast, finished him off. He retires to Wellsboro, Pennsylvania in 1812 to run a distillery, which quite frankly, in 1812 or any time is kind of the happy ending, I think, for any artist, Robin. <laughs> yes, there's a this 
uh, poetry in that. And so the thing that makes this leap out at people is the fact that the book itself is suffused with arsenic. And this, in fact, is not uncommon in books from the 16th to the 19th century because there is a particular form of arsenic that was uh, used to make things brilliant green and could have been in the book cloth itself in the cover, could have been in the case, but it was also frequently used in bindings and was used throughout Europe. And I guess we can probably have a pretty safe guess that somebody was doing that in America too, because it took a long time for people to figure out that arsenic was bad for you. And it was just used to produce this particular brilliant green color with a variant of arsenic called copper acido arsenite. And so it gives you a lovely, nice green color. And then over time, the okay. arsenic in the binding leaches through into the whole volume. And right, so into the pages. Yeah. And so uh, the original article sort of presents this as kind of a mystery, which makes me think that the people who own this poisonous book aren't talking to the people, including an organization that deals <laughs> with this well-known issue of poisonous books. And I think this is the part we can maybe find a silhouette oriented plot hook later, but I think this is the part that I think seems vividly gameable is mm -hmm. that, you know, there's an important clue that you need in this old book, but you have to handle it very carefully. Uh, the CNN article refers to hazmat suits being used. That's a bit That's over the extreme. top because arsenic is not a skin contact poison. It's an ingested poison. Nonetheless, you don't want to be, you know, licking your finger and running it over the yes. page and sticking it's it in the Name of the rose style. <laughs> and, then, and then eating a hot dog. So I think you can depict your, you know, seasoned investigators who are experts in books as, you know, following certain safety precautions. So they'll be wearing nitrite gloves. They won't be eating or drinking or, or touching their faces while they're looking at the book or uh, handling it with, you know, damp or sweaty hands. And of course, they'll be washing their hands afterwards. And the aware librarian, and there's an organization devoted to making librarians aware, will take any of these bright green, probably poisonous books and take them out of regular circulation. Seems like a good choice there and put in the rare collection with the safety precautions. And so I think that will be a fun scene where you can have the characters pouring over this book that's extra dangerous for some reason. And arsenic is not the only toxic substance that you might find in old books. There's uh, chromium and mercury and good old-fashioned lead. And for our purposes, of course, these sort of more quotidian poison books might in fact be disguising some other sort of, you know, shall we say, ichor-related poison that may have in infused a book and may cause even worse things then you know slightly more lead in your system than you ought to have yeah the uh the notion of the king in yellow but it's found in copper acetoarsenite arsenite is kind of fun i feel like you could definitely have uh, not so much that uh, the book is you know bound in some kind of uh, horrible monster skin although that's another way to get everything poison but the spiritual infection the demonry or the lovecraftianness or the carcosiness of it of course as we see from Chambers, it works best on you when you're ill already, when you fell off a horse or you had a bad fever. That's when the king in yellow, you know, sort of slurps his way into you. So you get sick from, you know, your arsenic book. And as you are sick from that, that the poison content of the book 
works its way into you as well. So it's a sort of an opportunistic moral or spiritual infection to go along with the actual poisoning. And maybe the poisoning is done on purpose to open the reader's soul to the magic. And worse yet, maybe that's the only way you can properly learn the mythos magic or the satanic magic or whatever your book contains is to get yourself poisoned by the arsenic. And you have to lick your finger when you turn the page and you have to get your face way down in there and and smell the binding in order for the the magic to uh, communicate itself to you. Otherwise, you're just reading a lot of nonsense names and looking at pointless geometry. Right Now, uh, books, of course, were rare in the pre-printing era particularly, but uh, even in the early printing era. And there are lots of book plates and inscriptions that promise to bring a curse down upon you if you steal this book. And of course, that's not just books, but it is books as well. So you can also envision that you know, there's a magician who wants to protect a tome of ancient knowledge or even like a full-on spell book. And you don't want just regular old people or people who haven't been through the mystery initiation or uh, whatever it is, you know, touching and taking and grabbing and feeling your book it makes it eminently stealable. So you need to know the anti-poison counterspell to speak before you open the book. If you know that, the book is fine. It's great. Nothing happens. But if you don't know it, the poison in the binding or even in the ink in the words starts to uh, come out and slowly get you. So it can be a, a security measure put there by a, a wizard of yore. Now, I guess we should also come up with at least one plot hook about the, uh, the silhouette part of this. Mm-hmm. And I guess the low-hanging fruit there is that you're looking for signs of the Innsmouth look in different areas, you know, which, which of these various towns did our did Bash or a, a fictional equivalent go through and find a lot of people with weird physiognotrace results? Uh, you know, which ones have the, what look like the little gill things on the neck or that sloping brow or whatever it is. And so that can be, you know, a genealogical investigation where you're trying to, you know, backwards reason from, you know, knowing a particular person who you suspect maybe, uh, you know, have a little bit of deep one blood in them and you pull out the silhouette book to see if uh, that seems to be a, a something that runs in the family. You, you could also have a, a magical physiogna trace that doesn't just take your silhouette, but like the camera was supposed to, it takes a little bit of your soul when it's doing the trace. It was tracing your aura as well as your regular thing. You could either imagine a magical version of this that is just auras, or you could imagine a seemingly regular one. Even this one is seemingly regular and that the trace does in fact include the aura or the, the magical essence of the person so that you can use it for necromancy or you can use it as a uh, component in a voodoo doll or in some other way. It's magically significant, which means that any of these nearly 1700 people have a very strong interest in keeping that book out of investigators hands and maybe that's how it got covered in arsenic is that they busted into the you know uh, bash library back in the day and they doused the book with arsenic on the theory that well anyone who tries to use this to do magic on me because i'm immortal and have been ever since cuba in 1804 or whatever or new orleans which i guess is a more vampire type city anyway that that's a, a precaution taken in the early days. And now that it's all been digitized and it's up on the internet, the, the vampire of New Orleans who had been living his life perfectly well without his magic essence being touched by a bunch of strangers is suddenly, you know, back in danger and he has to deal with it. And the reason that he's come out of his quiescence and started, 
you know, depredating again is because he's got to secure his position before someone who is, you know, the, you know, a Van Helsing or a rival vampire figures out that one of those nameless New Orleans people is actually, or named New Orleans people is actually the New Orleans vampire. And that's, uh, he has to sort of uh, deal with his situation because this, the good people of the Smithsonian have exposed him magically as well as historically. And finally, the plot hook may lie in the physiognotrace machine. It may well be that you need to go to the dimension where everyone is two-dimensional. And to get to the 2D dimension, you need to have a uh, flat topa of yourself produced with a particular magical machine. It makes a magical shadow. Yes. And so that would, first of all, entail finding an extant physiognotrace machine. Can't be that common if we don't even know, uh, have its patent papers Mm-mm. and uh, find it and then have yourself transmitted into a shadow being or a two dimensional being and then uh, go into, uh, you know, the realms of either of those. And it's time for us, Ken, to go into the realm of another segment. The Best of Askfagelm is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast's album unpoisoned by joining such safety-conscious Patreon backers as... Ginge. The Molten Sulfur Blog. Randy Ship, Ryan Lasseter and Tenant Reed. The smell of the popcorn, the whir of the projector. Once more, we walk down the increasingly garish carpets to our center seats in the center aisle of the Cinema Hut for the SF Cinema Essentials Film Festival. And we are just now, Robin. In the 1980s, we're officially in the 80s. Uh, music has got those cool electric pianos in it. Maybe there's a saxophone somewhere. The trailers are, are got garish neon instead of bland earth tones. We're into the pinnacle, not just of world culture, but of science fiction film, I would say. And to start us off, you're going to start us off with a film that is a fantasy. Well, Somewhere in Time is a time travel movie. I think <laughs> just having the justification for time travel, you know, not have a machine in it, I think it has to uh, go in this category. Otherwise, we're quibbling. And we're talking about Somewhere in Time by Jean Oswark from 1980. And I think this is, first of all, a really good film, one that I think people forget because it's a, a romance chiefly, and mm-hmm. as such, for our purposes, is an example of the science fiction film also being of another genre as well. So now we've got a, a romance film, 
This is about a character played by Christopher Reeve, who sort of falls in love with a photo of a beautiful young woman from 1912, figures out how to go back and visit her. And of course, what better reason for the lovers to be parted than the fact that they are separated in time and cannot be together because of uh, paradox and uh, so forth. So You say figures out a way. He wishes hard. It's, you know, we might be saying Berkeley Square is science fiction by this definition. However, it is an excellent film and it's based on, to my mind, a novel that is actually just as good by Jack Finney. So... I'm not too head up about including it in our litany. I just feel like, you know, people who are mad at Star Wars are just going to be beside themselves about somewhere in time. Well, they can be mad at me for that. Sure. All right. So next we come to uh, what you talked about electronica scores coming in. The king of 80s horror is also the king of electronica soundtracks. That's John Carpenter, whose Escape from New York from 1981 brings us back into a post-collapse mode. And here... Our gritty hero, played by uh, Kurt Russell in a um, more than somewhat ironic mode, is no longer are we dealing with a soldier of the system who turns against it, but rather this is an outsider. This is uh, your chin-stubbled, leather-clad, anti-authoritarian mercenary who goes in to do a job, and that is to go into New York, which has been turned into a prison encampment in this post-collapse future because the president's plane has gone down in it. So he has to rescue the president. So it's an action movie as well as a sort of episodic visit, a series of kooky characters, post-collapse science fiction movie, and continues the uh, into the 80s, the theme of science fiction being more conservative than you think it is, because this is a a film that, although its tongue is in its cheek, is drawing on the trope of the city as a crime-infested hellhole and extrapolating fears about crime as sort of the basis of its science fiction dystopian premise. Yeah, while still making the sort of anarchic point that crime is relative, depending on, you know, if you're holding the power, you're not a criminal, even though all of the powerful people are just as criminal and awful as all the criminals are, and that only by holding to the sort of code of the cowboy is Snake Plissken, Kurt Russell's character. Well, one of the great names in all of <laughs> cinema history. Yes. But but only by holding to that code, he's the only morality in the world. And in this way, I would argue that Escape from New York is a really triumphant revisionist Western in the spirit of Sergio Leone and in the spirit of, of even the later, more extravagant revisionist Westerns, where the, the gunman holds virtue merely by virtue of being a better gunman than the next guy. And Snake Plissken, you know, can't even be killed because everyone thought he was dead and he shows up and that sort of iconic individual, uh, again, has a reactionary quality to it, even though we may be indicting the power structure and feeling very cool and liberal about it. The fact is that we have exalted the individual to do so. And that, especially in the Reagan 80s, is going to get bigger and better and more powerful. And uh, while we're on the topic of science fiction westerns, uh, I think we can now get into, and post-collapse movies, we can get into The Road Warrior, which is another exact example of this, although part of Mad Max's character is that he holds to the pre-fall uh, morality. He's uh, sort of a, a a knight from a fallen order in, in that way. So it may be a little pre-revisionist, a, a standard Western, where he's restoring order to a broken landscape by virtue of violence, and then he has to keep driving on. Uh, this is George Miller, 1981, and this is everything that I said that uh, the original Mad Max was. It's just 
bigger and clearer for Robin, so it's an actual science fiction film. Right, and not just a masterpiece of science fiction, but I think even more so, a masterpiece of action cinema. Yeah, and and certainly of, of car chase action cinema. Car chase action cinema. Everything is done real, it's impractical, it's just an astounding piece of kinetic work that uh, picks up the whole action tradition and uh, turbocharges it and the post-apocalyptic trappings are a vehicle to uh, so to speak uh, to enable that so next we come to one that's very much science fiction and one of the rare things that i think is probably full-on hard science fiction because it's set on io a moon of jupiter there's a mining base there once again we're seeing older film genres resurface as science fiction because this is definitely a Western in terms of Sean Connery's role as a lawman bringing justice to a frontier. But it's also a police procedural because he's investigating a series of worker deaths that turn out not to be quite so accidental. And I would class it as, you know, one of our full essentials. It's directed by Peter Himes, by the way, uh, from 1981. So Outland is definitely a film that I think captures the sense of being on a base in another planet and the the hardships of that and giving it a sort of a a visceral, hard sense of uh, reality that a a lot of uh, these films are starting to depart from as Star Wars becomes more influential on them. Yeah, Peter Hyams definitely made this as a Western. Uh, It has the skeleton of High Noon in it, although it's not the same story as High Noon. Uh, As you say, it's also police procedural, but it's very uh, structured uh, to be a Western. And this is Peter Hyams has legitimately said, I made a Western. I just did it in space. Right. And he's also said, which is absolutely correct, that he was very fortunate to get Sean Connery as the marshal because Connery brings a gravitas to the parts where he needs to, you know, do a showdown Wyatt Earp style. But he also, when Connery is in danger, you're more worried than you would be if it was some weedy other protagonist. Because if it's Sean, if Sean Connery can be explosively decompressed, we are actually in space. This is a bad situation. And so the combination of toughness and vulnerability that you get by casting Connery and that Connery brings to the character of the Marshal is really what holds something that on paper, a Western, but also a police procedural, but in space, it seemed like that would fly apart. But Connery's performance throughout, and of course, he is the central character because none of it can move forward without Connery's presence, really takes this movie from a fun watch and a terrific time up to, a, as you say, a genuine essential and one that I don't know that people recognize as much as they maybe ought to. Right. And you'd think there'd be more installation-based science fiction up until now, since it's a staple of so many things, including Doctor Who, which they're beginning versions of that, you know, long predate this. But as far as really great science fiction films that are set in an installation where people are being knocked off, uh, this is kind of the first one to make it to our list. Next, I want to briefly mention one that I think is not the absolute pinnacle for this filmmaker, but is possibly the most influential in terms of its look and themes on later science-tinged horror and science fiction, and that's Scanners by David Cronenberg, uh, which is about a psychic weapon that gets out of control and uh, blows people's heads up. At that time, the prosthetic effect that did that was also both startlingly innovative and utterly shocking to people, whereas now it's like, you know, an episode of Supernatural, six heads Mm -hmm. blow up, nobody blinks an eye. So we need to note Scanners, but I'm going to 
pick another Cronenberg later as my uh, one to class as an essential. Well, I, I would never get up your nose on Cronenberg. I leave that to you. But I will say that Scanners also got a terrific performance as Patrick McGowan as the main bad guy. Once more, casting turns out to be part of what grounds the viewer in a seemingly farcical or fantastic set of goings on. I think that Scanners, I mean, I, I hesitate to say this about you and Cronenberg, but I, I almost kind of think it's better than you're saying it is, but I'm not going to fight you over it. But I definitely recommend people who are interested in that sort of psychic weirdness subgenre of science fiction dig it out if they haven't already seen it yeah it's well we're seeing i'm not i'm not knocking it but yeah, I, right. I think at this point cronenberg is just starting to cross the line and erase some of his previous unintentional awkwardness and from now on when there is awkwardness it is intentional he means to do it next we come to one where the question is well which cut of it do you mean is a masterpiece and i'm not sure i'm gonna answer that question Probably the one that I saw in 1982, and that would be Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Of course, this is another example of a genre blend. It's a film noir as well as a science fiction film, but it's very science fictiony because it's about hunting down robots. And of course, it's based very loosely, as many films will be very loosely based on a Philip K. Dick work. And this is famous for uh, not just being a science fiction film, but having uh, its production design influence literary science fiction, because of course it was a big, it had a big impact on the whole cyberpunk genre. Unforgettable performances, both uh, by Harrison Ford as the the titular Blade Runner, yes, as the a agent of the system who turns against it. So it's a lake breaking version of that. It's not totally gone. Uh, Sean Young as the woman he falls in love with, who uh, might not be a flesh and blood woman, and of course uh, the breakout role from Rutger Hauer as the uh, sympathetic antagonist. Yeah, Blade Runner is, as you say, there's lots of versions to pick from. I think the version without the voiceover is maybe the one to go with. That said, it is entirely successful. And in the way that Outland is a thoroughly successful Western in space, Blade Runner is a thoroughly successful private eye noir movie, not in space, but in the dystopic corporate dominated future of, I think now, right? Isn't it like 2020s that the movie is taking place? So the production um, design, the music, every element that can go into a film is working at the top level. Ridley Scott is, you know, unveiling himself as more than just the guy who can scare you, but as a guy whose cinematic vision is just overwhelmingly present in the old or tourist way and is also compellingly watchable. He still can't shoot a bad frame, even though the movies have maybe gotten, have, have dropped off a bit in terms of quality. And Blade Runner also begins what is probably the best single year for science fiction cinema, 1982, which means, of course, that we're stopping here and continuing with 1982 next time. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation... Uh!
In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlathe tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. This time around, we're not going to go up any creakety cobweb stairs to visit the consulting occultist because uh, he's got a co-promotion going on with Architecture Hut. So we're going to visit him in one of London's most impressive and perhaps strange churches because beloved Patreon backer Chris Huning wants to know about Nicholas Hawksmoor, uh, sometimes referred to as the devil's architect. Now, Ken, sometimes people will back project a historical figure into being cooler and more magical than they really are. For example, there there's a time in uh, medieval era where uh, the poet Virgil was primarily thought of as a magician, mm-hmm. <laughs> wholly fictionalized. Nicholas Hawksmoor has more recently been smashingly nerd-troped by some of the best nerd-tropers, the most high-level nerd-tropers in the business. But before we get to that, let's have the regular historical version of Nicholas Hawksmoor. The Architecture Hut version. Yes. Nicholas Hawksmoor is born in 1662 in Nottinghamshire. He is a commoner's son. I think he's, his dad is a plasterer. And he shows a very early prodigal ability to draw. And so winds up apprentice to the great architect, Christopher Wren, who is still, maybe if you ask a random person, name a British architect, they will name Christopher Wren. And by God, he deserves it. He becomes Wren's assistant in around 1680 and is given part of the job of drafting St. Paul's, for example, where Wren proposed the design for St. Paul's, was told by the church that his design was too radical and he couldn't do it, and then built a building that, while technically to what the church wanted, looks like Christopher Wren's original design. And I think maybe a little of that jiggery-pokery Trump Lil rubbed off on Nicholas Hawksmoor. Hawksmoor, because of Wren's patronage, gets a bunch of government jobs because he is a devoted, if not fanatical, Whig, loses many of those jobs as the Tories come back into power. By 1700, he is also partnering, not quite senior partnering, but certainly not apprenticing, with the fellow Whig architect and former spy John Vanbrugh. And so from 1700-ish to 17. 17- 21, he's working with Vanbrugh, primarily finishing Blenheim Palace after Vanbrugh gets fired by the Duchess of Marlborough for getting up her nose a lot. Uh, one of the things people did say about Hawksmoor is that he was very, you know, unassuming, friendly, got along with everyone, didn't put himself forward, which and is partly characteristically non-arrogant for an architect. Right. It's it's amazing. That's because he was a commoner, I guess, and was worried that being arrogant would get him slapped down. But the larger effect is that he winds up finishing a lot of other people's work. And so it's harder to point to something and say, this is Hawksmoor all by himself. He does raise the first obelisk in uh, Britain, in Ripon, the Ripon Obelisk in 1702. He builds a number of country homes, many of which have fallen down since. Does some work for Oxford and Cambridge, much of which they reject as being too radical. But 
1711, his big break comes between Van Brugge and Wren. They get him the co-surveyor job for the law of 1711 that mandates there be 50 new churches built, mostly in the east end of London. Right. Spoiler, there won't be 50 built. 50 will not be built. It's a government project. So, of course, it's over budget and underperforms. And he proposes, as the sort of common look for these churches, a basilica after the primitive Christians. He wants to go back to pure at the time, Protestantism was a very sort of originalist theology. The notion was that the Catholics had added a bunch of nonsense. If we go back to the original Christian era, we would get pure Christianity, which is true as far as it goes. But as people have pointed out, the original Christian era was also when you had a zillion heresies. And although he proposes a basilica after the primitive Christians, his final buildings are neoclassical Baroque from the rules of the ancients, as he said, and they include pyramids and horologians and altars and Etruscan urns and sphinxes and mausoleums and more obelisks, because he is attempting to create the imagery of late antiquity to put people in the mind of a pre-Catholic Christianity. And that's sort of the production design, I guess, of his churches. He winds up building um, uh, six of the 50 that were proposed. Only 12 actually got built, and he designed six, and he co-designs two, and they are uh, primarily uh, scattered over the east end of London, the farthest one being in Greenwich, and I think Bloomsbury is the, is the farthest west, St. George's Bloomsbury, of the uh, Hawksmoor churches. And those are uh, amazing. For a while, our beloved friend James Wallace and I, whenever I was in London, we would go to another Hawksmoor church and, and gaze at it. And the physical effect of Hawksmoor that has been described by everyone from legitimate architectural historians to Alan Moore is that the church is too big for its lot and is sort of erupting out of the ground, massing in such a way as to almost pounce on you and fall on you, that if you stand underneath the Christchurch Spitalfields steeple, you almost get the sense that the steeple is going to reach down out of heaven and slap you on the head. The churches are massed like beasts of prey, like lions. They're not long and elegant the way that we think a, a Gothic church is, because, of course, uh, Hawksmoor is rejecting the Gothic, and the maddest he gets is when someone calls one of his churches a Gothic excrescence, and he says, you're just jealous, and you call everything Gothic that you don't understand because you're an idiot. And right. I've drawn this based on uh, Roman plans. He was actually, uh, because he was a commoner, he didn't go on the Grand Tour, so he never went to Italy. He was only going on old drawings of uh, Roman temples. And in fact, the, the church that he did in Bloomsbury, St. George's Bloomsbury, literally just looks like a pagan temple with a little steeple sort of stuck on the back end of it. And again, his argument is pagan temples got repurposed into Christian churches at the beginning. This is what I'm doing. I'm repurposing it back my way. Right. So why don't we wrap up his life and then get on with the, the high-level nerd tropping? At a brief period, he uh, becomes architect of Westminster Abbey, designs the West Towers. They're not finished while he's still alive. He does become a Freemason in 1730, which is practically the end of his life because he dies in 1736, leaving one daughter and a son-in-law who writes a lovely obituary of him and then promptly has him buried way out in the countryside, not in filthy London, where no one uh, would bother to go to look at a grave. Right. So, so, so even for people who want to turn an English Freemason into an occultist, just on the basis of Freemason, that's after the churches. That's after right. the, the big thing yeah. that all of the 
psychogeography it starts to revolve around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the onto the onto the woo-woo psychogeography that put this puts this in consulting occultists. Right. We begin to see a revival of Hawksmoor. Hawksmoor is dead to the architectural mainstream. Even people like Ruskin, who you would expect to love him, hate him. He's mentioned a couple of times, sometimes misspelled. But in nineteen twenty four someone writes a big reevaluation of Hawksmoor, and this is in an intellectual climate in which T.S. Eliot unbends so much as to mention St. Mary Woolnoth, which is one of the Hawksmoor churches, as a place that the dead stream to in the wasteland. And I think that gets people sort of thinking about St. Mary Woolnoth. Eliot, by the way, refuses to sign the Nicholas Hawksmoor preservation petition because he hates the writing of it. So T.S. Eliot being a jerk, as always. But in 1975, the poet Ian Sinclair adds Hawksmoor his churches as a poem in the poem cycle Lud Heat, which is about the magical underpinnings of London. Sinclair is working from the the Situationists and the their uh, inheritance from the Surrealists, the Derive, and the notion of the city as an occult palace. And he wants to do that for London because he thinks Paris is for foreigners. And uh, Lud Heat is a is a banger of a of a piece, and it's picked up. While it's still very obscure by the friend of the show, even though he doesn't know it, Peter Aykroyd in his novel Hawksmoor, which recasts Nicholas Hawksmoor as an out and out Satanist named Nicholas Dyer, who conducts human sacrifices to create the sacred geometry pattern underneath all of his churches. And our present day cop, Nicholas Hawksmoor, is investigating a series of serial killings that are also at these churches. And it wins a a big Whitbread Prize. It becomes a gigantic bestseller. And it sort of drives Hawksmoor up into the uh, magical consciousness of people like, oh, Alan Moore. Right. So now in 1985, he becomes the devil's architect. Exactly. He was not called the devil's architect when he was alive. Like I said, the worst thing anyone ever called him was a gothic architect, and he hated that. And the later Palladians didn't like him because he was too fancy and weird. But it's Peter Aykroyd that basically tars him with the brush of Satanism which Alan Moore gleefully picks up from both Aykroyd and Sinclair in From Hell. And as as you've seen, uh, Eddie Campbell's art makes the Hawksmoor churches look ever more terrifying and creepy, even than they are in person, because that's how art works. And in From Hell, Hawksmoor's sacred architecture becomes the blueprint for Jack the Ripper's murders. And that, I think, completes... The nerd troping of Nicholas Hawksmoor, as you say, to a fairly well with an all-star group of nerd tropers, if ever there was one. Right. And so it, it is actually true that all of these churches, of which, you know, only a fraction were actually built, were meant to impose a geometry on the city. But it wasn't, of course, an occult geometry because the background to that whole church building project was that after the London fires, a different protege of Christopher Renz, who then turns into something of a rival, Robert Hooke, who is one of those polymaths who's in biology. He was the one who started using the word cell. He made uh, discoveries in paleontology and in the physics of light and as a good scientific categorizer and putting things in their proper boxes. He proposed after the Great Fire to not only create a system where there were four types of buildings that were all these sort of brick terrace row buildings and there are four types of them for different social classes so you knew how everybody fit and he wanted to use those though in a, a different way than was actually used because he wanted to just knock all of unburnt london down and start over to which 
property owners said such things as no. (laughs) And what do you think this is? 19th century France? That didn't happen. But the buildings did happen. And that created a rapid urbanization. King Charles perhaps remembering what happened last time he made London mad. (laughs) Yeah. But also starting to get somewhat perturbed is Christopher Wren looking at this thing that wasn't Hook's plan, but came out of Hook's plan. Well, there's no unity. There's no cohesion. So let's have a whole bunch of churches and the churches will really pull the room together where the room is the city of London. Mm-hmm. And so Wren is elderly at this point, And so he calls on Van Brugg and says, let's create 50 churches and that'll create architectural unity in the city. And Van Brugg says, I got just the guy. And that's how Hawksmoor winds up building those churches. So it was a psychogeographical statement for sure. It just wasn't a satanic one. It was one of, uh, attempting to impose order on a chaos created by someone who set out to create order. And I I guess this is also an example of how when we back project things that look ancient and weird to our eyes now, we go, oh, this must be magic or the occult book. Really often it's a now obscure political reference. So in 2006, uh, St. George's Bloomsbury was extensively restored. And among the restorations was the return of the unicorns and lions to the steeple. And a sculptor, Tim Crawley, wound up getting the commission to make new ones because the old ones were taken off in 1870, possibly because they were threatening to fall on people and kill them. And no one wants to be killed by a stone unicorn. That's just uh, embarrassing. embarrassing. And so he had to figure out such things as were those carved in situ? And it looks like they kind of were. The, The new ones weren't. But if you still want to follow the idea that something that Ian Sinclair and Peter Aykroyd and Alan Moore all think of must be true because it's cool... Uh, you could then figure out something that happened in 2006 that was changed by the addition of the lions and the unicorns. But what they were meant to refer to at the time were the competing factions of the Jacobites and the Hanoverans. I'm not sure if we know which one was the unicorn and which one was the lion. Hanover is the lion and the unicorn is Scotland. The unicorn is still on the arms of Scotland today. Yeah. So it's a a political reference, not a, a mystical reference. But if you don't know your history, as everyone but Ken doesn't, it can all look like uh, like magic. And even at the time, people did raise their heads questioningly when the statue on the top of the steeple was not St. George, but King George. They felt that that was a, maybe a little a breath too far. And Hawksmore just wanted what he wanted. He also had a sphinx in that church. So lots of good fun going on. And again, it is because Hawksmore is attempting to create this sort of unified architecture out of the unified theological movement that he imagined the fourth century AD to be. And he's a good enough architectural historian to know that in the fourth century AD, people are going bananas with this sort of late antiquity, uh, almost pre Rococo type architecture, but he doesn't know theology well enough to know that it's because they all had a million different ideas of, of, of who Christ was. And so, his, his historical side and his theological side are, are working almost at cross purposes, even though once you get into the churches, the way that the, that these wildly terrifying outdoor shapes build is to create this wonderful sense of interior space that is really open and liberating. And you feel like you're one man under the eye of heaven and you're not being shuffled around like a bunch of Catholics would be. And, uh, that is sort of the other half of the Hawksmoor joke is that 
Normally, when you have a magic cathedral, certainly all the magic stuff they make up about Chart or uh, Rosalind, it's all on the inside. But Hawksmoor's magic is almost all on the outside because it's done by psychogeographers and poets who are taking the street view. But once you're inside the churches, there is a uh, an almost you know celestial degree of of welcomingness and light to the structure, and that's because he does this sort of gigantic cube on cube interior that just creates this uh, illusion of great space and great airiness. Right. The the street is hell, and inside the church is heaven. Exactly. So there's all sorts of energies being uh, called down, wittingly and otherwise, possibly retroactively imposed, but uh, still perfectly potent all the same. So I don't think that blows anyone's plot hooks in a mystical universe. No, I mean, you can certainly in a mystical universe say that Hawksmoor had to pretend to his piety to cover up his interest in Egyptian magic. And again, Hawksmoor has books of Egyptian hieroglyphs that he studies and is trying to create those visual elements into these churches. And you could even assume that if Hawksmoor is cool, someone in John Van Brugg's shop, Van Brugg, famous spy, playwright, dilettante weirdo, is a freaky proto-mason or black magician or something, is sneaking stuff into Hawksmoor's designs, that Hawksmoor is too busy to, you know, to run down every example. And someone says, what if we put a mausoleum here? And he says, that sounds great. That's very classical. Good job. And they go off rubbing their satany hands and saying, ha ha, I've put the mausoleum at the magic leyline nexus. And now in 2024, people can game about it. Right. So this is an era where you can't throw a rock without hitting something interesting. So whether you want to set things in the early uh, 18th century or set them today, uh, there's lots of uh, fodder to be had in Nicholas Hawksmoor. And when it comes to fodder, uh, we have a bunch of it every week and we'll be back with more a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrain Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Preserve the gothic splendor of this podcast by joining such towering backers as... Ethan, Mr. E. Schoonover. Jack Gulick. Michael Curtis. Mike Merles. And Ollie Toivonen. Where the show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Show your heroic readiness to get on with the scenario with our latest design, Premise Acceptor. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>